This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable! Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely and control vehicle at all times. Hey guys, quick thing. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by Mook Delivery, bringing you the food you love. Mook Delivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the result, you'll always be winning with Mook Delivery. So the only question left to say is, are you in? Order now on the McDonald's app and you can get reward points delivered too. So the ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus, rewards registration required, points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Hello and welcome to the Guna Talk. Back again with you guys for another show for another episode of our TGT podcast, our weekly show after our weekend match, which was a Friday this week, which basically means you've got two schools of thought, which is either Arsenal ruins your entire weekend or it makes it blissful. And then you remember the team that you support and you prepare yourself for a weekend of misery that can be saved only by my namesake, well, not namesake, but lookalike, necessarily. I am the fat Emmerich Laporte, supposedly. And, I mean, he turned up for the books today uh, with a fantastic goal for City, and it made our weekend all the sweeter. I'm joined by two fantastic guests, hopefully soon to be fr- three. I mean, you, you know what Wayne's like. So, fingers crossed, the Irishman turns up at some stage. First off, we're joined uh, by the man that's been trapped in his basement for the last month or so. He claims that it's because they're redecorating, but actually it's because he hosted his own house cronky out protest and the other half has effectively just kicked him out. How you doing, Jared? Are you well? Hey, doing pretty good. Thanks for having me back. And you're not too far off on the, the better half shoving me in the basement. That's pretty accurate. <laughs> Deary me. It's, I mean, I wish you the best of luck, mate. But uh, yeah, it might take you a while before you get back out again. Um, and then uh, I can't think of an info, intro for Drew. I literally spent about a good 10 minutes thinking, what, what can I say about Drew? Um, that won't hurt his feelings. And the answer is nothing because he's a sensitive little flower. So, Drew, welcome, mates. How are you? I think you just found the intro. (laughs) You're in now. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm very good, mate. I'm Mm -hmm. very, very good. Um, Considering, of course, the weekend that we just experienced. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's let's kick off talking about that. There was obviously the weekend started a little bit early for a lot of people. The game was kind of a secondary fixture, and the Cronky protest took real precedence. We are going to talk about Cronky and the ownership and the issues that surrounded that, Um, but we are going to start the podcast by, of course, talking about the game itself. There were some issues, uh, it's fair to say, with the lineup, more so through force. Um, others would say that wrong decisions were made. And for a player that seemingly was out the door uh, just a fair few weeks ago, Eddie Nketiah has somehow just wangled his way back into the starting 11. I know he did score against 
against Fulham. And of course, we've got some injuries, but a lot of people were hoping for Martinelli or someone else or even Balogun to maybe even step up. But Drew, I saw a tweet that you put out ahead of the game, um, which got a lot of attention, a lot of stick and support, in fairness. It was both kind of half and half. And you said effectively, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were surprised at the surprise of how many people were surprised by, I'm going to say surprise one more time, of the amount of people that were kind of taken aback by the fact that a, a natural striker was playing instead of what has predominantly been a wide player for us in Martinelli. I mean, I don't know how you want me to follow up with that, but you've kind of just summed it up. No, I just, um, I don't think we're at that part of the Arteta project where we can just have... Um, you know, wide players becoming false nines on a whim. Like this isn't Bernardo Silva at City who can just slide in or fulfill. And like we we're not at that level yet. Um, I just think maybe maybe Arteta wanted some continuity in terms of who's playing where. Um, I just think the overall angst was I think just fans just want Martinelli starting, and I, and that's okay, obviously. And I obviously I, I support that theory. I think he should be getting more minutes than he has been. Um, but I don't think that's going to help anybody by, you know, slotting him into a center forward role. Um, or I don't think he's ideally suited to yet. I don't think we really have the system in place or maybe even arguably the players around him are available for that to really come off quite well. That's um, not to say that I think Enketia is, is the answer either. Um, we've talked a lot in the, in, in the, um, What's up, Cooper, over the last couple of years? And I did jokes from Mike about it, obviously, but I, I just don't think our Nketia is is of the grade that we really need, even for you know a second or third choice striker. So, um, but I do think it's just you know, just based off of he's a center forward, so he's going to play a center forward in the center forward channel. I think that's I think that's kind of where it is. And and to be fair, you know, Martinelli came off the bench and getting what 17, 18 minutes in, in that role doesn't also mean that. He should be starting in that role. So two different things coming off the bench in 18 minutes when you have energy, when you need to press more. If maybe uh, you switch tactics just a little bit and you want maybe a bit more fluidity than having just a, a real focus in, in the attacks, it's, it's a bit different. So, um, yeah, I, I just kind of feel like at this point, it, I think there's so much angst. And, and this is where I kind of uh, understand. I think there's so much angst in the fan base that anything that happens at, fans don't agree with it's, it's going to be met with maybe more backlash than it would if circumstances were normal you know what i mean yeah. like if, if we just won five in a row or and we had an outside shot champions league and you know you, you think maybe had maybe martin Lee didn't start because he might be starting you know midweek against vrl you never really know so maybe there's a different scope and lens that that fans look at things through but um yeah, I just think it's things are so bare to me in terms of patience that I feel like anything could probably come under an increased microscope that may or may not be warranted. Let's have a look at what you guys said in the chat box because I did ask um, of what kind of who you wanted to see starting at striker. Um, uh, I mean, Indusud says uh, Leno should have been up front. We'll come on to him a little bit later, but I think there's a little bit of tongue-in-cheek related to that. Uh, UTA says no-brainer. It should have been Martinelli. Jashar says uh, agreeing with Drew there that Enketia was probably the more natural choice. Um, <laughs> and we'll answer some of these other questions a little bit later. And if you do have questions, of course, we will be doing our question section as normal. 
Cornwall at the last half an hour of the show. Um, Yonit Mack wanted to see Balogun uh, being brought in. Matthew says, I didn't expect Martinelli to start, especially up front, so I was fine with Enketia. Uh, Danny from the Burkett Wonderland uh, says, Eddie has shown he can only be prolific against young men slash teenagers. Sadly, he will probably never be good enough. JD Davidson says, Balogun, because of all the non-stop hype, just to put it in perspective of the Premier League, which actually makes a lot of sense because he has received a lot of hype from a lot of Arsenal fans when, ironically, his youth record's not even stacked up against Nketiah's youth record. He's come onto the, the Europa League scene, scored against Mulder and Dundalk. He hasn't yet proven himself against the bigger side. Arguably, he's not really been given the opportunity to, which is also a big thing that goes alongside that. Um, but I think there is an element of maybe tempering expectations of this season and maybe the last few Premier League games when there's not really anything to play for for us anyway. Uh, we'll see him come into those games uh, maybe as a substitute. Um, another decision, which I suppose with the benefit of hindsight, Jared, is a lot easier to say was the wrong choice. Um, but he was the man that you picked uh, in your preview show in goal, and that was Bernd Leno. A lot of people wanted to see uh, Matty Ryan continue in goal after how he did against Fulham, and he only conceded a penalty in that game, and I thought his distribution was really good too. But he went with Leno, um, and obviously we know what happened. Are you regretting that, or do you still think it was the right choice overall? I know with hindsight, it's very easy for me to say that, but go for it, mate. Yeah, I, I guess the only reason that I would have thought about Ryan in this game is if for some reason Leno needed a rest, which I don't see being the case. I don't think Leno's a world-class goalkeeper. I don't think anybody thinks that of him. But of the two, I think objectively, when you look at their whole careers, Leno is a better keeper than Ryan, so I would leave him in. I mean, obviously, he had an absolute howler, and it's going to be interesting to see what happens on Thursday. I think that's going to be the really interesting thing that comes out of it because now, even more so than last week, we're going to see a lot of people pushing for Ryan to start. Um, I'm kind of reluctantly still in the camp. I would go with Leno that game. You know, I certainly understand why we may not. It was a horrific goal he gave up that obviously cost us three points, two points, however you want to look at it. But I do still think he's the better keeper. And like Drew said, when things aren't going well, every single thing is going to get critiqued to a much higher degree. And especially with our fan base where everybody's so reactionary to everything. You know, I, I look at it as if we pull Leno out, you know, what's the road for him getting back in look like? You know, certainly if if Ryan goes out there and lets three past, you know, for one, Leno will get his spot back. But we, we're we around the Arsenal community enough and online community to know if Ryan starts on Thursday and gives up three goals, the instant reaction is going to be, this is the fault of Mikel Arteta. He made a knee-jerk reaction to one bad goal given up, made the wrong decision, played not as good of a player and cost us our season potentially out of Europa League, out of Europe altogether. So there's kind of a lot going into that one small decision. But if it was up to me, even despite the performance Friday, yeah, Friday, I would still go with Leno be just because I think in general he's a better overall keeper than Ryan. Fair enough. A fair play for, for sticking to your guns, fella. I, I'm, I'm of the other opinion. I, I feel like uh, in the most important game of our season, um with the kind of mental low that Leno has hit, I would rather maybe see him given a little bit of a kind of escape from the spotlight, not necessarily as a punishment, but more so 
for the protection of his, his sanity in a way, but I completely get the, the other perspective of it. Drew, I'm really intrigued to know where you sit because you've obviously, you've had your reservations about Leno from the point of which he signed, of course, as I can see from your facial expression. Um, so what do you feel about the, the choice? And obviously, how, how did you feel about his performance against Everton as well? Uh, I mean, Dan, Danny kind of put it best, you know, Danny has a habit of doing that. Um, he made a really good reaction save. Once in a half. blue moon. <laughs> <laughs> he, had a, he had a really good reaction save in the first half, and then you know the howler. And, and, and more often than not, you know, eight or nine times out of ten, you know, Leno has a, a pretty good day. But I, I, again, I, I think there are a lot of fans who do think Leno was world class, and that's when I get angry about it. He's he's not, and um, the same kind of big blunders you'll see from him with us you saw at Leverkusen for the majority of his time there you know um he benefited from a system that really suited him you know the defensively they were quite strong when he was there these are all good things obviously but it's the reason why he hasn't overtaken Menelonar even when Menelonar was at his lowest point for the last couple of years maybe before the season everyone was saying well Norrie's got to go Norrie's got to go Norrie's got to go and, and Leno didn't take the chance you know Ter Stegen didn't do it either obviously but um he has he's barely used Ter Stegen so I just kind of feel like I think fans have a kind of a tainted idea of what goalkeeping is it's not just about shot stopping and, and let's be clear I think Brett Leno is probably the best shots pure shot stopper in the Premier League I would honestly say that I think um, Michael, your your Marcel is a good one to agree with that. He has a lot of experience goalkeeping. He, he has sons that are keepers, so he has, he understands maybe that more even than I do because I wasn't a goalkeeper. I don't train goalkeepers, so I don't know. But um, I would say just purely off that aspect alone, you would rate Leno. But there's so many other intangibles to, to Leno's game that show you why maybe that goal against Everton happened. So the fact that mistakes have happened before. So just inexplicable lapse of judgment just out of nowhere you know um doesn't command the box well isn't isn't great on set piece like these are all things that people have been talking about since he was in Bundesliga still so um for me my only gripe is the fact that there hasn't been enough marked improvement um in his game since we purchased him and I think that's why when I remember you and I spoke about it the other day that's why I think you're from the camp of you thought that we should have kept Martinez you know I think there's scope to, to make the argument. And I'm not trying to get into this debate because I, I, I just talk to patients. But um, if you look at the overall game, you could probably say that maybe Martinez is a little bit better or just maybe more suited to the Premier League. It's something that I, that I said <laughs> when, we, when we were first linked to, to Leno, before we yeah. bought him, I said his game could struggle in Premier League because just the aerial presence that you need in the Premier League is, was a lot more than in Bundesliga. You know, not a lot of teams lump balls into the box. Not a lot of teams rely on, on headed goals to the same fashion. The physical aspect of it. Um, the fact that, you know, it's there's just so many tactical things that you can compare the two leagues to say that a keeper like Lionel would struggle less in Bundesliga than he would in the Premier League. I think a lot of those things have cropped up since he's moved to. And, and, and let's be clear, I, I don't think he's been poor. I don't think he was bad against Everton. But... It's just, to me, it's just frustrating that he still keeps making those Every now and then he makes those bonehead errors. And I think what frustrates me is I think he gets a more of a pass than someone like, I hate to do this to myself, but someone like Chaka who, when he makes the odd mistake, it's like people want to string him up by his toenails, you know, and give him the Mussolini treatment. But if Leno makes a bonehead error, which directly cost us, you know, at least a point, 
you know, when we weren't very good. I think some people try to, to, to wiggle their way out of giving criticism just because overall, whether they like his personality or they, or they like him as a player, or overall because he has been fair to relatively good since we bought him, that frustrates me. I don't think he should be dropped necessarily. I think if you keep doing this with your keepers, you need your keepers to be consistent, I feel like. And I think United got lucky in terms of De Gea when they switched to to Henderson. I think they were lucky that Henderson came on and then did as well as he has. You know, really kind of took his chance, similar to, to Martinez, but you know, with, with different circumstances. Um, but I think Lennon should keep his place because it's, it's, it's a European fixture. Things will be a little bit different against Villarreal, you would imagine. Um, so maybe the, the best of his game will show in that regard. But I think if he has a if he has a howler against Villarreal, then you could say maybe you give Ryan the rest of the Premier League and maybe you keep Leno for Europa League or vice versa. I don't really quite know. Well, I was going to say, yeah. surely you'd go vice versa because Premier yeah, well, League's yeah, done. Yeah, exactly. Well, whichever it is, you know, however you want to spin it, I do think that Leno has to bounce back. And I think Arteta made that clear. In his post match, he said, Yeah, he's gonna, he has to get him understand that mistakes happen. You move on from there. If Lennon moves on and he has an absolute brilliant performance, then that answers your question, right? But, um, it, yeah, I mean, I get the frustration behind it as well. I mean, but it wasn't, I wasn't necessarily surprised, but it was kind of just like, Of course, you know, like, of course that happened because why wouldn't it? So, yeah. Um, you brought up Martinez, um, which I mean, they're losing currently 2 1. Uh, I don't know if Martinez has been at fault for either of those two goals because mm. I haven't seen them, um, which ironically helps us in the battle for ninth place <laughs> in the table. Um, so that's still odd. Uh, but when it comes down to kind of that argument, I, I don't like talking about things obviously we have no control over and it's, it's a lot of context to it, but that you do have to have come to a period where you say, Look, for me. Oh, is it 2-2? Two, two? It's 2-2 two, two now. So they have they equalised in the last few minutes. So they will still remain one point behind. It doesn't change too much. But yeah, they'll remain one point behind us with uh, a game in hand. So it's uh, it, it's probably the time, Jared, where you turn around and you go, we probably made a mistake. Yeah, I think a lot of people are saying that. And Are you saying that? <laughs> I would say of the two right now, who do I think is a better Premier League keeper going forward? I would I would probably lean Martinez. I actually took a lot of flack on a different podcast quite a while back, and Drew saying something about it kind of made me think of it. I made the statement that I'm not saying Leno is a world class goalkeeper, but I think he is a world class shot stopper. He has a lot of he makes a lot of incredible saves, the big aerial saves, but he is a little more deficient than Martinez in a lot of those other areas. So I, in general, I like a keeper who's bigger in stature, who's strong in the air. And just when you watch the game, you feel like Martinez has more a command of his area than Burt Leno does. Now, whether, you know, that matters to you, I, I don't know. But when I watch the game, that's what I take out of it. I feel more confident when the ball, when a cross is coming in or a corner is coming in, I will feel much more confident with Martinez there than I do Leno. Now, I, I think it's by small margins. I don't think this is a case where one guy is dramatically better than the other. I don't think either one, any of us would call a world-class goalkeeper. I think they're both of a Premier League level. It's just kind of the fine margins of what you're looking for in a keeper. But having the hindsight we have now, I would certainly take Martinez based on what he's done this year over what we've gotten out of Leno this year on our end. I think that it's obviously with the the guy that Leno is and the, and the season that Martinez has had. And funnily, I saw someone tweet saying, like, if you actually – if you take away the, the mistake uh, against uh, who was we playing Everton, I and mean, you take away 
the mistake in the other game. I can't remember what game it was. Um, I think it was Liverpool when he just like his, his wrists just melted uh, effectively. Um, he's actually had a decent season uh, overall, and actually he's pulled off some decent saves. It's just it's his distribution, it's his consistency, and it is those errors. Jared, I feel like you want to jump in. Yeah, and I think the distribution is a big part of why people prefer Martinez. But I think there's a little bit of recency bias to all this, probably myself included. When we look at last season, as well as Martin has played, before he came in, I think arguably prior to the injury, Burnt Leno was on pace to maybe be our player of the season last year. So he hasn't had a history of performing poorly for a long time. But based kind of just on this season, I understand why a lot of people would prefer Martinez would have stayed and Leno would have gone. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Martinez is, is, for me, the better keeper. He's He's got the highest save percentage in the Premier League right now. So even as we talk about there as, as Leno, kind of as a better shot stopper maybe, but this season, Martinez has been incredible in goal for Villa. And I don't even think that's down to like, in previous seasons, you might be able to say, well, that's because Villa faced more shots. Well, Arsenal faced a hell of a amount of, of shots this season from opposition. So I don't think that even comes into it right now. So it's it will look like a mistake. It's one that we can't dwell on. It's one that I'm not going to dwell on because we can't go back and change it now so i understand why it happened and why we did it but it is looking like a, a very big error on the on the kind of the, the recruiting and, and selling side of of things at the club um in other areas of the pitch there's an area i want to focus on drew and this is Xhaka playing at left back now against sheffield united <laughs> Xhaka looked good in the game against lavia prague i thought he looked quite good in that game against fulham there were things that were starting to unravel and then it seemingly unraveled quite a bit against Everton and Richarlison in particular on that right-hand side. Is it time for you to play a more, either play a more naturally left-footed and player that can play there in Saka and move Xhaka back into the midfield over a Danny Sabas or a Cedric coming into that position as another alternative? Or are you still in, still inclined to say that he's, he's the best man for the job there right now? I personally, I've never said he was the best man for the job, so we can kind of just <laughs> put that out there immediately. In anything or just a left back? No, just a left back. <laughs> uh, yeah, and you know I like I like a lot of what Jacket brings, but certainly it's not a left back. And I think this is kind of where a lot of people will criticize um, Arteta. It's that 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 match to match management of saying you know you could look good against a Sheffield United it's not hard to defend and look good against Sheffield United who only play one brand of football but when you play a team like like Everton um like Fulham who for all their issues this season they do have some players with pace that can kill you if you're not careful and I do think maybe Jacka played pretty all right against Slavia I think a lot of do with maybe Sima not being there I'm not quite sure but um I think kind of for me, that's where you have to make the change. Yeah, I mean, it's not ideal that Cedric isn't predominantly left-footed. Yeah, it's not ideal if you move Saka back there, you know, because you're, you're taking away so much that he gives us moving forward, although you could just say you could operate in the same way we operate Kieran Tierney, so then you don't really change much. But I think having to juggle your 11 to, to really utilize your player's best attributes is important instead of just harping on kind of one aspect of it. I mean, yeah, great, Saka is left-footed, but you know, I would rather play at Saka there. And then, you know, you you have Smith Rowe that can play on the left. So you, you, I mean, I'd even be fine with Saka playing there and even just using Willian at left wing. I know that might go. I'd rather that than play than play a, a, a midfielder who is a deeper, a deeper creative player at left back when it's just not suited. You can maybe argue that in 
left side of a back three, it, it's not as bad. You know, you're not as exposed for pace. Um, the principles of playing left center back in the back three are similar to playing as a deeper midfielder or as a defensive midfielder, so it's not that much of a yeah. change. When you play left back, and it, it, it takes so much away from the way we play. You know, that's what I mean. Like, Cedric might, be, not, might not be predominantly left-footed, but he can still get forward. He can still kind of do similar things to what a, a traditional left footed left back can do whereas jack is just kind of almost operating like he normally would in midfield just from left back it's not the same doesn't give you the same threat doesn't give the team the same issue to worry about and then when when they're in possession when they're trying to break you can look at jack and say well obviously he's a good player but he can be exposed to pace so if you ice i'm surprised more teams didn't i'm surprised they didn't try to isolate him more than they you know more than maybe they did moving forward in the match i figured they would have gone right for his throat from minute one for the entirety of 90 minutes i don't think it did so i think we got maybe a bit lucky in that regard um i think this is where a lot of this is where i criticize arteta and and i prefer that he stay but one of the things that i dislike the most is that decisions like this you know it makes more sense just forget about the fact that you want someone left up there for now play someone who is more suited to the position overall and you just sacrifice like there's not gonna be a left footed player there for a few matches, really not that big of a deal. If it was like a whole thing, you know, if we were stuck in this position for six months, it's a different discussion. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I just kind of feel like moving forward you know, against Viral, and to his credit, you know, not a lot of us like Unai Emery, but I kind of feel like he'll he'll target that. If, if he sees Jaka there uh, midweek, I think Emery is tactically astute enough to, to, to focus that as one of our weaknesses and he might want to exploit it and however way he plans to do that, I don't know, but it's something we need to be cognizant of. So I just think Arteta needs to make some little tweaks a little bit better than he has been this season. Yeah, um, I'm just checking out kind of how Villarreal are getting on um, this weekend because they played uh, Villarreal, uh, sorry, they played Barcelona and, and lost, but it wasn't exactly a... It wasn't like a run-of-the-mill win for Barcelona. They won 2-1 at Villarreal. Um, they went 1-0 down to a Samuel Chukwesi goal, which in itself is a talking point because he's the guy that's going to be up against whoever our left-back is. Loves to cut inside on that left foot and strike the ball. And I don't want to see Granit Xhaka up against him because if he gets turned, he's never catching it. And if he is he's going to take him out and it's, it's going to be an absolute bloodbath. So I don't want to see that happening. Um, they've been weird of late. I mean, they lost against Alaves. They put a decent display in against Barca today. And of course they've had some really decent results this season too, especially in the Europa League where I think they are pretty much unbeaten at this point throughout the competition. So it's, it's, they're a very, very good side. Um, not as good as the VRLs we played in the past, um, but they're still a very, very good side uh, under a manager that knows us inside out. Um, let's see what you guys are saying in the chat box in regards to who you would play at left back. Victor says Saka. Kevin says Saka. Joel's says Saka as well. Uh, JD says, Cedric, we uh, need Saka up top. Uh, Sasuga would not put Xhaka in the squad at all, which I think is slightly harsh. Uh, Gary Hardy says, Saka. Um, let's <laughs> go. The guy says, anyone but Bellerin, which is fair enough. Uh, and I saw, also sure, uh, saw a shout for a three at the back system with Saka as a left wing back, which I also think is an option that we can use. I think that Chambers gives us the ability to play him as kind of a right-sided centre-back in a back three with then Marian holding uh, in, in that back line. Or you could even go with both left-footers if you wanted to. 
Um, and that's the only way I feel that you could put those two together. But they have never played together, Marie and Gabriel, which would be a little bit of a problem, I feel, going into this one. But we've got lots of kind of decisions to make, that is for sure. Um, let's move on to talking about kind of the, the big VAR situation we faced, um, which, Jared, I I mean, I put a picture out on social media of the, of the call that they showed on the screens. And, I mean, I couldn't make sense of it. Um, I then went to Dale Johnson, who's uh, a journalist at ESPN, who breaks down on Twitter all of the VAR calls every single weekend. And he effectively said that a different VAR, so a different video assistant refereeing official, would give that the other way. And he would place the lines in a different place because human error and, and the way that they're placed means that there is when they're that tight it's just it's basically just the discretion of wherever the line is placed by the official what do you do you feel about that whole situation i mean arguably for some people it wasn't a penalty anyway but the penalty was given and then it was the var's offside that, that ruled it out so what did you make of of that whole fiasco var has been a disaster from beginning to end this year the one thing I'll say about it, it's been consistently inconsistent. My issue isn't necessarily with one call or another. It's that you'll have a virtually identical situation on the same match day in two different games. It goes to VAR and we get it called the opposite direction. And I think that's everybody else's issue with it too, is just the vast inconsistency. And then when some decisions, I think, go for one of the larger teams that kind of everybody's got their tinfoil hat on that VAR's you know, in place to help these teams and hurt other teams and all that. I don't necessarily think that's the case. I haven't seen enough to make me think that is, but I understand why people hate it. The Pepe penalty, uh, the words that were, every time you hear VAR, you hear the term clear and obvious. Nothing about this is clear and obvious. If you have to put one millimeter lines on the screen, look at it in HD from 10 different angles, there's nothing clear and obvious there. If it was called onside, it should be onside. And as far as these lines that are touching each other, I think it's just against the spirit of the game. The rule's in place, so an offensive player isn't gaining an advantageous position over the defender by playing beyond them. There's no way you can tell me that that was what happened there when you look at that play with Pepe. They're virtually, the lines are right on top of each other. And on top of that, I don't know, I haven't gone back and counted how many passes were played between when that happened and when the penalty was called. This was, you know, when they talk about phases of play, I think it's a very good argument that this happened further enough back that it shouldn't matter anyway. It really didn't have any impact uh, on the way the play ended. But as a whole, I don't like VAR at all. I don't like the way it's been implemented. I don't like the way these things are kind of adjudicated on the pitch. I'd be very much for, and I know people hate anytime we try and inject anything American into European sport, but I like very much when you watch an NFL football game, when a call is being made, the official has to walk out there, put a microphone on and sort of explain their decision and why they made it. That doesn't mean you're going to get every call right, but I think it does end some of the fans questioning it and commentators questioning it as far as what the person was thinking at the time. As far as the penalty, it, it was a soft one. If they called it a penalty, fine. If they didn't, it's not one I would be outraged by. But for me, beyond just the one call on Pepe, VAR's just been horribly inconsistent, and there needs to be some major overhaul of it this summer, I think is fair to say. 
Yeah, I I think there's obviously there's a few people in the chat box that are having their say on it, which is great. Um, JD Davidson says VAR is highlighting how bad the referees are in terms of consistency. I don't know if, if you watch the the League Cup the League Cup final today, and whilst obviously I was very happy that the referee was seemingly taking a very lenient uh, kind of way of looking at Manchester City during the game, but he screwed Spurs over a lot in the game. Um, he was giving really strange decisions. I think it was Tierney. Um, I can't remember his first name, um, <laughs> but he, he was the guy that was the ref. And he effectively just let all of these cynical fouls go, uh, unless it was a case of an absolute outright one. There was one by Diaz on Kane that wasn't even a foul. He got the ball, but it was cynical and it was worthy of a yellow card. Had it been a foul in the area, didn't give the yellow card. It was, I couldn't believe it. Paul Tierney, thank you in the chat. Um I, I couldn't believe how lenient he was being towards Man City. I was buzzing for it. Don't get me wrong. Um, but yeah, and it, it has this season really highlighted. I mean, the famous quote of Wenger saying how many English referees will go into the World Cup. Like that that in itself sums things up about the officiating in the country. And I'm not saying that it's perfect everywhere Everywhere else. It isn't. I mean, the amount of La Liga I watched, the refereeing in Spain is horrific. It is really, really poor as well. So it, just in general, officiating needs to improve. And I think, Jared, when you raise the point about being able to hear them that would bring a, a level of accountability not only would it explain to us why they're making those decisions but we'd understand that and then that could be critiqued and you'd have kind of debates and you see like peter walton in the bt studios who all that peter walton does for me is just try to justify the decision that the referees made not necessarily give his own view and even when he says something prior to a decision being made and it's wrong and the referee on the pitch gives a different decision he then goes oh i can see why he's done that. it's just like just have an opinion like don't just try and justify it and that's the problem we've got at the moment it's because we can't understand and why they're given the decisions that they are like there was another decision i don't know drew if you remember this in the game but uh, i think it's holgate uh, makes a tackle on Pepe and it studs down onto his ankle. And some people might say that that's not a, a red card. Um, I don't, part of me feels like it's in that really kind of gray area between a yellow and a red for me. Um, but then I look at the one for West Ham against Chelsea on Balbuena, if people saw that one, where Balbuena literally clears the ball away. And because of just where his foot's landing, he lands on the back of, I think it's Chilwell's uh, right calf. They give that as dangerous playing and send him off. And it's this inconsistency that I just can't get on board with. I don't know what you made of the, the tackle from Holgate on Pepe, Drew, but give me your thoughts around the VAR situation. Uh, I mean, I'm a fan of VAR, but I'm not a fan of the idiots running it. And I think that's kind of where most people stand. <laughs> and with as much Bundesliga as I do watch, there's far less controversy week in, week out with the way VAR is, is used in Germany. Because things are done more so by the letter of the law. It's, and there's no, I think for me, the refereeing in England is always about the referee's bias and how they interpret what the rules say. And I think for me, that's that's the problem. If, the, if you remove interpretation, if it's just literally strict letter of the law, verbatim, word for word, this is how something is. When you see this, this is how it's ruled. That's it. You know, if, if you just did it just that way alone, you would take out so many of the issues that we've seen with our personal injury. Um, you know, I'm, I am a fan of it. Um, but for me, the contention comes in, and I think Yannick has pointed this out, and I, I've been I have been saying this since, you know, since VAR really first came in. I was just saying, 
football is not made to be played by robots. Getting things to the millimeter perfect is not possible with a human being. It just isn't. Mm-hmm. And the technology doesn't exist really. Well, maybe it does to measure a human movement to the, to, to the millimeter for it to be perfect. That's not what football is supposed to be about. Um, you could, and then, so you take an example. So if a player is offside and you're starting to draw lines about, and you're measuring half their thumb as offside, and we've seen it at that point, it's it's, it's to the point of excess. Like that, there's no advantage on my thumb being slightly longer than yours, and I am now. That's the reason why I, I was clear yeah. through. No, like that, that's that's ridiculous. It's one thing, you know, if you're. If half your body is offside, you know, like traditional offside scores that you would have seen over however many decades of football we all cut between us. But I think they're measuring it to to a standard that's not possible to justify. I think so. Yeah. If you if you change that aspect of it, and then if you change the aspect of things cannot be interpreted by the refs. Again, so we can go back to the whole gate challenge. If first of all, the fact that we're discussing if, whether it was the yellow or the red is half the problem. There should be a, a rule that says if, if, if it's if it studs into the ankle, it's a red or it's not, that's it. Do you know what I mean? Like, so just that example, you know, in isolation kind of proves that that's half the problem. You need standardized things that just are irrefutable. This is what it is. This is what it's not. That solves a lot of problems for me, I think, for, for everybody. And whether we agree what the ruling is, you could at least say, well, there's no controversy because we know what the rule is. We don't have to agree with it. But that's and and to be fair, I've gotten studs into the ankle. You've gotten studs into the ankle. That's for me, if I'm a player, that's red. My glass ankles, yeah, yeah. That, that, <laughs> that's red. When I coach, for me, that's red. You know, but if it's if I'm a fan, if if, if my player does it, and I'm watching Russell and, and Jack does, I might try to find scope to say that that wasn't a red. And here's why. But it's not my job to try to officiate the match. I do feel like sometimes because I think it's not their fault, but obviously if if you ref in the sport, it's because you're a fan of the sport. So you also feel that passion for the sport. Maybe sometimes your inherent biases come in from your experience in that sport. And then you can kind of look at that example, you know, maybe, I can't speculate, obviously, but I do feel like that's where some of the bias comes in. Maybe how this referee feels this rule should be, but isn't, so they make a slight different judgment on the, on the, on the pitch of the time based off of their own inherent bias. You know what I mean? So. Mm. If you just change the rules for it to be cut and dry, that that just solves so much for me. Yeah, and I mean the issue is, is obviously we've seen inconsistency through making the rules cut and dry because of the whole handball situation at the start of the season, where the handball kind of rule was basically if it hits your arm in the box, it's a ped. And, and it's, I get what you're saying, Drew, but it's also about how they write them so that situations like that don't happen. And then that they don't change it or they decide to change it during a season because we've got, with the handball situation, we saw with Liverpool against Newcastle, Callum Wilson goes through on goal. Um, it bounces off the keeper and hits his arm. It's in a natural position. It hits him in a split second. He has absolutely no control where his hand is and his arm is basically into his body anyway. It's not away from his body, which is that whole kind of idea around the rule. It goes in and then they disallow it. And then in the commentary, it tells you how, how little people know about the rules right now. And even to the point where the Peter Walton didn't know is that they said in commentary that next season, they're changing the rule, so that won't be allowed. And then after the game, it turned out that, that actually that goal still would have been disallowed next season because it was scored by the player whose arm it touched and they're changing it next season so that if it hits the arm of a player, that then that player plays it to someone else and they score, it's fine. But if the person who scored the goal 
it touches their arm in that moment and goes in, then it's not a goal. And the explanation behind that was all about the fact that we want to play football. We want the goal to be like a purity and stuff like that. And I couldn't believe what I listened. So hold on. It's a handball for one person, but it's not handball for the other person in the exact same example. But do you see the verbal and mental gymnastics that I'm talking about? That, that shouldn't be the case. That's It's way too much. You know, it's like to the point of absurdity. And I think that's where... I think every fan base can agree whether if you, whether if you've gotten lucky with VAR or not this season or last season or whatever it might be. There's, I think for me, VAR is just one massive gray area, and week to week, depending on the referee you get or whoever is controlling VAR that week is gonna that's gonna be the way the wind blows based off their own personal biases, and I think that for me is the problem. Like I said, if you remove personal bias and you try to hone in as as much as you possible, obviously there are circumstances in football that's really hard to write. Like an in stone kind of letter of the law, and like it's like a, like a handball. Like you know, if you take a shot, it deflects off the keeper, it hits my arm, and we're team. I, I can understand that there might be some discussion about should there be handball on me or not. That's fine, but like there's so many other situations where you can look at it and just say this is it's either this or it's that. And we've heard a lot on commentary and in halftime and full time on your feeds and mine about you know studio commentary about like, this is nonsense, like. Pick something. Just pick something and, and run with it, you know? And it's just like, I don't know. Yeah. Right. That, that's that's kind of the game. We, we talked about the, the rubbish goal we conceded. We talked about the VAR chaos. Uh, all we haven't really talked about is kind of where this, this leaves us and Arteta and the situation. Um, because even though a lot of people have written off the league, um, the meltdown was still very classic Arsenal on social media, even though... The league games for a lot of people don't particularly matter. They matter to me because I'd like to see us build up some momentum going into these games in the Europa League more than anything, rather than actually where we finish in the Premier League. Having these kind of inconsistent runs does not help our stance. That that win against Sheffield United set us up really well for the game against Slavia Prague, which we then scored four in. So it's really important that that we have these. I I obviously. I'm still in the same mind that I was and have been where I feel like I want to see another summer window under this coach before I think about deciding that I want change. Um, I was listening to Andrew uh, Arscast saying that he felt if we don't, based upon how we finish this season, how we don't kind of, if we don't qualify for the Europa League, then he could see maybe the ownership based upon the backlash of this week, making more drastic decisions and getting rid of him at the end of this season and being proactive and getting someone else in the next summer window. I don't know if, if they would do that. I would struggle. I still feel like that he has the full backing of this, the ownership and, and things as well. Jared, I can see a nod in your head. Do you think that it's, do you think this is going to be the case? Do you think that you're wavering in any way based upon, I mean, say if we were to lose the rest of the Premier League games this season, would it change your mind about the coach? It doesn't change my mind on the situation. I've said going back to, you know, last fall, Arteta is going to be our manager at the start of next season. If we lose the rest of the Premier League games this year, I don't think he's going anywhere. And I thought it was funny this week that a lot of people sort of criticized his, you know, the way he sort of limited the way he talked about the Super League and KSC's involvement in it. If there's one person that doesn't want to see KSC out, it's probably Mikel Arteta because they seem to love him and his job has been extremely secure. If you bring in new ownership, one of the first things they're going to look at is the executive structure and who's managing the team. And if it's somebody from the outside who comes in, they're going to look at our season overall. And it's hard to say at this point, it's it's been a resounding success. So I think they would be much more apt to make a move 
than KSE will be this summer. Um, that said, I'm fine with him going into next season. I think over the last 12 to 18 months, the moves we've made in the various transfer windows have been, you know, certainly not perfect, but there's been a lot more good than bad. Um, even the moves that were criticized at the time, um, Cedric, Pablo Mari, people were very critical of those. And both guys have been serviceable players this year. I think Mari better than serviceable. I think he's actually been quite good. So I'm fine with him getting the summer window. They make some good decisions. I think we could be set up for a little bit more successful year next year than we are right now. I mean, the the, the other plus thing he has going for him is right now the bar's pretty low. You know, we're sat mid-table, and that's not a hard thing to come up from. You know, you get a different result in two or three games, and you're in a significantly better position. You know, we're a couple red cards away from, you know, being seventh or eighth and at a point where we're not completely out of contention for a for a European spot in league. I mean, we certainly are now, but I expect Arteta to be here at the start of next season. I'm hoping we have a good summer window. And if the January window is any sign, I think there'll be a really big push to get rid of those guys on the outskirts that we've kind of been calling to get rid of. You know, there's no question in January, they did a good job of getting rid of a lot of guys we didn't want here. So I think that's going to continue this summer. And just the nature of getting rid of those guys, and we do have some guys out there who we're going to get rid of that will bring a decent value. Maitland Niles has played okay at West Brom. Joe Willick's been really, really successful at Newcastle. I mean, you you could argue, you know, he's, I I put a tweet up yesterday and his four goals there, he's gained them eight points this season off of his four goals. And right now they're nine points above relegation. So, you know, that one good decision by them to bring him in on a transfer may have saved their, their club and their season from relegation. So I think his fee, and I do think we will still sell him this summer, is going up potentially. But uh, I think just by the nature of that and all the guys moving out, that the transfer budget is going to be okay to where we can bring in two or three guys that, you know, maybe one, possibly two starters and another significant role player. And that, if those decisions are made right on those guys, should be enough to where we're, you know, potentially a top four team next year or certainly right in the mix of getting the top four when we get to this part of the season next year. So I think Arteta's still got a lot working in his favor, and I think he feels pretty confident that he's not going anywhere. So I think that almost makes these games for him a little bit easier going into, and then I don't think it's going to have any real impact on his employment. I just want to pick up on the Joe Willock uh, thing you mentioned because I wanted to have a kind of a brief point on him. Um, it, it has really shocked me in a way how many people I've been asking uh, or rather been saying in on Twitter how much they would say, oh, look how good he's doing. Let's keep him. And, and, and I'm stunned by that because for so long we have sold so, so poorly at the club. Like, And we've hung on to players thinking that they might either get a bit of value or they might come good. And then eventually they've gone for absolutely peanuts. And and this is the thing is that we've got an opportunity here to sell a player in my mind for 20 million quid, which is the value that's being touted, which I never thought we'd be able to get for him, to be honest, based upon what we saw from him at Arsenal. To, to a club in Newcastle that aren't going to be a threat to us. I say that now. <laughs> that aren't going to be a threat to us, he says, praying. Um, and you've got a chance to, again, make a really good profit on this guy. And I feel like he's playing really well at Newcastle because that that's kind of where he fits in for me in the Premier League is that that kind of level of a, of a mid. I say mids, they're fighting relegation, but I look at Newcastle as more of a mids Premier League table team, to be honest, in the more general things of when things are more normal. 
I look at that and I think about it and I go, yeah, that, that's probably where he suits them. Um, and they've shown that they're willing to spend Newcastle in the last year or so. They hadn't previously, but you look at the money they spent on Joel Linton, the money they spent on, on the other players they brought in, St. Maximin, etc. So that they can bring some players in and they usually bring just one or two of that figure. And he could be one of those, especially if he's really liked by Steve Bruce and they want to keep Steve Bruce. I think that's that's the perfect time to sell it. Anyway, you may have noticed when Jared was talking that Drew's face dropped um, considerably, not because of necessarily anything that Jared said, um, but more so because of some happenstances going on in the chat box uh, regarding the manager and who could be his replacement. Now, I cannot speak any higher of, of a certain Julian Nagelsmann, to be honest. I think he is a, an amazing coach. I think that he would be just an amazing person at Arsenal. I think he would be the best option. I think Arsenal should do everything they can, Drew, to go for Julian Nagelsmann. I can see from your face the elation and the agreement that you have with me. And uh, I'd just like you to, again, echo the thoughts that I've just said there. I need a moment to come off me to compose myself. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to kill you for bringing this up. <laughs> But like, ironically enough, in the last, let me see, when was it? In the last hour, Jan Agafjortov just went on Twitter and was saying that Bayern have contacted Leipzig to speak to Nagelsmann and that Nagelsmann would potentially be open to going to Bayern. Obviously, if you know Hansi Flick is leaving. Um, so there you have it. Simple as that. For, for me, the time to get Nagelsmann was before he went to Hoffenheim or right after he left Hoffenheim. It wasn't going to be after he went to, to Leipzig, especially given the work that he's done and the trajectory of some other clubs. And it'd be a different discussion if Flick wasn't leaving early. The minute that Flick was leaving, Bayern were going to go after Nagelsmann. Whether he wants to go or not, it's entirely up to him, but that, that's been the ultimate goal. You know, they tried to get him when Pep was on staff to groom him under Pep, and then when Pep left, Nagelsmann would be in place already. For me, I think he, he he's you know, the, the best German manager available. And you know, there, there was scope to suggest that if, if Klopp left Liverpool, say the, the Super League went ahead and, and Klopp left Liverpool, then Klopp could have gone to Bayern as, as an option. Bayern could have looked at that, but I don't think Klopp wants to leave Liverpool, um, at least not now anyway. So there you have it. That's that's the, the level of manager we're discussing. And I think one of my biggest gripes with the, with the fans is that they have to understand that the lens that, people view the club with changes depending on who you ask. You know, if, if, if we, a lot, I know a lot of fans want Graham Potter as an example, and I'm going to throw this back to you. <laughs> Why did you say that? Now Why? you know how it feels like. I'm oh people. my God. <laughs> just, just for a second, how, how desperate, how <laughs> desperate are people that they're actually using a guy that won one home game in the whole of 2020 to be Arsenal's coach? How, how, Listen, I'm seeing I, I, Eddie Howe suggested in the chat, Eddie, Eddie Howe, <laughs> a guy that relegated Bournemouth, we now want as the Arsenal, okay, sure, I mean, great. <laughs> Touche time, may know how it feels like, but for me, <laughs> yeah, but, for me it's, but it's the same thing, like, if you, if you look at some, just, just take the Potter example, he would bite your hand off to, to come to, Arsenal are massively bad of Brighton in, in every respect of management, but you can't look at the, the trajectory that Leipzig has, has taken since they've been introduced into, into professional football, what they're, how, how they're built, how they're structured, the way that they spend, you know, the way that they do things on the back end, the way that they're very, very quickly becoming one of the predominant challengers to Bayern, whether they've had 
considerable European success, if not one trophy, but they've they've gone deep in Champions League already. You know, these are things that you have to, and if you stack it up against Arsenal, the only thing you can say is that Arsenal would maybe have more money, or maybe he'll get more wages than he does at Leipzig. But we're we're not the, I don't know, we don't have the pull for other people and and players that we would for for certain ones. That's kind of one of the things that I talk about when I talk about transfers is that. If, if you ask an Austrian if they want to go to Arsenal, they they don't have a, a, some tied Arsenal. This goes back to you know the, the Marcel Zabitzer links that we had. If if he could choose between staying at Leipzig and coming to Arsenal, he would stay at Leipzig. If or if he could go to a club where he has maybe a bigger connection to, then he would probably go there. You know, it's it's, it's just something I just I wish fans would be a bit more, bit more open minded to. But yeah, for me, I'm not surprised that that, that Bayern are rumored to be interested in Nagelsmann. I, I don't even think Spurs have a chance at Nagelsmann for very much the same thing. I think the only way that they would or anybody, if us, they would give him carte blanche on, on transfers. He's very much the kind of person that needs to build a program and, and a system on his vision and his vision alone, which is why I, I kind of even wonder why he would want to go to Bayern because the whole reason why Flick is leaving is because he's at odds at loggerheads with Bayern Brass about how they want to do things moving forward. So if Bayern's not prepared to give him carte blanche in a lot of different respects, that relationship's going to go sour probably pretty quickly. So I don't know. But yeah. Do, do you feel better now? Do you feel better now? <laughs> I got my Potter thing out. That was fun. Yeah, no, I've got, yeah, see, it's good. It's good. This is what we do. This is our therapy. That's what it's for. Um, before we get into your questions, uh, which uh, obviously we spend the last half an hour of these shows um, answering your questions. So if you have one, get ready, get prepared, because we, we're entering that, that period. Um, I wanted to discuss... Uh, obviously, the other thing that happened that day, um, which was, of course, the, the protest, uh, which happened outside the stadium. Um, uh, Jared, when do you think, and I asked this, I don't know if people tuned in for our Let's Talk Arsenal show on Friday, but actually Pablo, who I was very, very thankful for being there, managed to actually pass uh, the microphone over to one of the fans that was at the ground so we could interview someone that was there live. It was a really good, I really enjoyed doing it. I thought the listeners really appreciate it too. Um, and I asked them a quite a difficult question. I said to them, ultimately, the end goal of this protest is most likely unachievable, that the Kroenke is probably not going to go. He's not going to sell. Um, but what then is the point? Why do it? Why why protest? What is the ulterior to it? So I'm gonna I'm gonna again similarly challenge you, Jared, to kind of ask the answer this question is whilst the protest is certainly something I'm behind and I support it a hundred percent and Kroenke out all the way. But what is the ulterior, what is the alternative to that end goal that you think the protest can achieve? Yeah, I don't think, like you said, I'm in agreement. KSE, I don't think, is going to sell because they have no reason to sell. You know, all the hashtag cronky outs, while I'm not a huge fan of them either, and I would be fine if they sold the team, it's different when you say, you know, manager out, board out, director of football out. Those are all things that can realistically happen due to some fan outrage. Ownership doesn't have to do anything. They're not going anywhere. You can't vote them out. You can't tweet them out. I'm sure KSE probably didn't even spend a minute watching what was going on uh, with the protests. Um, while I still think it's good that fans want to be heard and have the opportunity to be heard, I think one of the great things about living in the areas we live is that we're all free to to voice our opinion and and go out and do something like that. I think that's great. But it, like you said, it doesn't have any real impact on you know our situation. 
I saw some tweets that people said, you know, we dropped out of the Super League after the fan blowback. And uh, I saw in the apology PR letter that got sent out by KSE that, you know, we hear the fans were listening. We understand this isn't something you wanted. So we removed ourselves. One, I find that a little disingenuous. I don't really buy that to start with. And two, I think there's a really good chance that it's going to come out, you know, down the line that some arrangements were made for some money to go to these big six clubs to stay there, which then the fact, I mean, I already think it's disingenuous, but it will be proven so without a shadow of a doubt once, you know, the figures drop and everybody sees that Arsenal and everybody else got money uh, to not go to the Super League and come back. But I think it's it's a good outlet for the fans to get their frustrations out. You know, it's about as united as our fan base will ever be on anything. But I don't think it has a real impact on the situation. Like I said, I don't think KSE is going anywhere. And some of the things at the protest, I think, were a little misguided when you hear people say, you know, we have to get rid of KSE because they won't invest in the club. Well, one, if you get new ownership, it may be someone else who's on a self-sustaining model and runs it similarly. And I understand if people would just say, well, yeah, but we'd like them more than KSE. That's fair. We might like them more than KSE. I don't think they're the most likable bunch. But the fact is, it, it deflects a little bit from the actual problems that we have at Arsenal. Our net spend the last five to seven years is on par or higher than a lot of the other teams that are above us in the table. And that has nothing to do with KSE. That has to do with our executive team, our management, our board, not managing the funds they do have properly. I mean, we could, between us, probably sit here and list off really quickly a dozen decisions they've made that weren't good for the club. Either not selling players when their value was high, waiting and selling them for less, letting them go on a free, signing these old guys to $250,000 a week contracts, all of those things. And those are nothing to do with KSE. So while I'm all for the protest, I think it's great to be out, have your voice heard, let people know your opinion. I don't think it's going to do anything to change our fortunes in any real way. I think kind of what we're going to do and what we have done is what we're going to continue to do. And we just have to hope that, you know, people like Edu that are in those positions currently continue to make good decisions, you know, in these off seasons and summers. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think that I don't think that they are going to, I don't think they're going to sell. I don't think there's anything necessarily Arsenal fans can do to make that happen. It's going to be down to if a investor comes in with a ridiculous offer or as David Ornstein put it this morning, a astronomical offer um, <laughs> that is going to convince them. Briefly, Drew, obviously, the, the the news that dropped also as the protest was going on is that it was spotted, if you saw, um, by Daniel Eck, who, as I said off the show, I've been desperately trying not to call Daniel E.K. like a DJ all the time. Um, but Daniel Eck said that he would be willing to throw his hat into the ring and a good discussion, um, and Jai and Guna spoke about this on Twitter quite a lot as well, and kind of the why it's a bit unrealistic, uh, his net worth, and why just because you're worth that amount of money doesn't necessarily mean you could then have that amount of money. You you have to sell the, that share in the company to actually get that money first to reinvest, and that in itself takes ages and finds you have to find buyers and stuff. But yeah, talk to me about your views about the protest and and the prospect of, of maybe getting a new buyer in. So I've been uh, I've been pretty vocal about two things. One, the fact that I think fans should protest if they feel the need. You know, again because of how much I appreciate how German football operates, fans need to have a voice in the club they support. I think that's 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 paramount. Football is about the fans, it's about the people. So if you've taken the voice away, then you don't really have football for me. So I'm I'm I the protest 
for bare minimum didn't bother me. A few things about the protest did bother me. One, a lot of the xenophobic rhetoric that started to come out from certain sections about through the protest that I have a big problem with. Not all Americans are bad just because we have American owners. So that's the first thing. I wasn't really a fan of that. Um, and second thing, I think if, if you're going to protest, you need to protest based on facts. People were showing up with banners blaming the Cronkies and KSC for things that they never did. Blaming the Cronkies for the club moving to the Emirates, blaming the Cronkies for changing the badge. Those two things happened years before they were ever involved in Arsenal. So you, if you're going to go to a protest and you're going to protest against a particular ownership group, then you have to come with your arguments that are focused on that ownership group. Keep it pointed or else you did, at that point, you're, you're doing a disservice to your own protest. If, if you're making it seem like you just wanted to complain about everything and it doesn't matter who you blame, then why are you protesting in the first place? So those are my two biggest gripes with it. Um, do I think it's going to matter? No. I mean, you and I talked about that in WhatsApp. You know, General assessment say 5,000 fans showed up to the protest. I think that's a pretty good number to say. I think it was more than 2,000 that some reported. I don't think it was just this massive thing. So say 5,000 fans showed up. 5,000 fans out of a fan base that's somewhere between 30 and 40 million people globally is not going to matter to an ownership group that are the heads of a global sporting entity that is the top 10 or 12 richest football club on the planet. That's valued over $2 billion. They're not going to care about 5,000 disgruntled fans. You know, St. Louis fans, when uh, it was confirmed that the Conkers were moving the Rams back to LA, 25,000 people showed up in protest one day. It didn't change a thing. You know, people have to understand that billionaires really only care about the bottom dollar. If you if you want to get the Cronkies out, and this is the ironic thing that I tweeted about, I said people are showing up to this protest in droves wearing this season's kit. If you want to protest about ownership, why are you buying the season's kit? Why are you showing up to a protest about the owners wearing this season's kit? You know what I mean? Like, if you want to get the Cronkies out, stop giving them your money. And it has to be in, in droves. But people, at the end of the day, don't want to do what's actually required. They don't want to cancel their season tickets. They don't want to stop going to matches. They don't want to stop buying the kits. And, yeah. and I, I have a lot of reservations about some certain things about the platform. But uh, recently, DT said this on one of the AFTV uh, uh, shows with him and just Robbie. I forget. Maybe all against blazing. I think it's what's called. Yeah. But he said that. He said that at the end of the day, you know, we're going to keep buying things. And he said, both you and I, Robbie, are wearing kits that we just gave club money. We're wearing things that give the club money, right? So, of course, the owners aren't going to leave. Are enough people going to actually protest? Are enough people going to stop giving the club money for them to, to lose enough money to leave? Absolutely not. And then if you look at the finances of it, the Cronkies have no reason to sell. You know what I mean? Like They would happily take thousands of fans being unhappy if they keep making money every year. You know, Billionaires go where their money is. As long as Arsenal is profitable, as long as Arsenal sits in their portfolio and allows them to do other business ventures to keep making money, they're going to keep Arsenal in their portfolio. That's it. Unless there's something catastrophic happens and you have to sell it, or unless someone gives them some, the, the most outrageous bid comes to the table that they can't possibly say no. I mean like $4 billion. Like here's $4 billion, give me Arsenal. They would probably take that, but that's twice what the club is valued. Of course you would take that. Anyone would take it. Any smart businessman or woman would take that. But no one's going to do that. So I understand the sentiment that, that the Eck came with. And he might, on average, probably be a better owner because, you know, he's European. He's grown up with a love of football. So 
by default, he might have a different aspect and a better appreciation for things like fan voices and, and maybe fan involvement to a bigger level than maybe what the Crockers are used to because in American sports, my opinion, so matter about franchises because you know, all that matters is the bottom dollar, right? So um, I appreciate that sentiment, but I, I don't think it's going to matter. Again, I, I, was, I, I was just in like an hour-long debate about this on Twitter before the podcast. And Michael, <laughs> Michael, Michael and I were talking about just the, the, the finances behind everything. You have to make it, something has to happen to make this a, a no longer a profitable venture to get KSE out. That's it. Or yeah. you have to give them such a, a, a massive sum of money for them to say, I'm never going to make that much money continuously owning the club, so I may as well take it and run. You know what I mean? Like, that's it. And it's unfortunate. And, and a lot of people, I kind of feel like, you know, Maybe Jack probably would this too. I think when when you look at both sides of an argument and you sit in, some, in the gray area, sometimes you try to see both sides of it. People automatically assume that, like I've been called a Kronka supporter more times than I care to count, and it's, oh, it's, yeah. and it annoys me. It's not, I don't support their ownership. I try to present the argument from their perspective. It doesn't mean I support them. It doesn't mean I want them as owners. Believe me, if Eck came in and said I'd buy the club, I'd rather take a chance on Eck for sure. You know what I mean, but. Yep. When you look at it, things logically and, and, and without the bias lens, KSC is going to be here unless they don't need to be or unless they can't afford to be. And that's kind of where I'm at. So by all means, keep protesting. But again, if you're going to keep protesting and I support that, you have to protest in a way that's going to matter. You know, yeah. um, like someone said, you know, billionaires that have like the portfolio the size of KSC, they're not going to care if, the fan base of one asset is annoyed when the fan base of another asset is, is quite happy. You know, so that's kind of that's kind of it for me. Uh, Ian Freitman in the chat says, I hear a lot of acceptance of the KSC ownership from this panel, but uh, not much regarding solutions. Some of you are too critical of the fan base. Uh, Ian, I would suggest scrolling back listening because Drew literally just said what you need to do if you want to get the ownership out, which is hurt them in their pocket. Don't buy the kids. Don't go to games. It's, yeah, I think sometimes what we have, what I often experience is, is blinkered hearing is what I like to uh, blinkered And it's uh, the same, on, same on Twitter. People will read one third of what you tweet and harp on that one third, but forget the other two thirds were yeah. that we would have agreed on. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Or oh they watch God, a third it's... of a video and leave a comment about that third, not having listened to the other two thirds yeah. where we address exactly what that comment is is talking about. Yeah, it's, it's frustrating as hell, um, but it's, it's just the world we live in, unfortunately. Anyway, we have reached the point of the show where we are going to go through your questions. Um, you can keep ans uh, asking them in the chat box. We'll try and get through as many as possible. We have got quite a few. Um, I really like this one from Matt G, and I'm going to give us all a chance to answer it, but we're going to be swift with it. Um, Matt G says, if you could ask Arteta one question, what would it be? I'd ask, why do you think the team that has the most possession deserves to win, which I quite like as a question. Um, I'm going to give you two a little bit of thinking time on this and quickly try and come up with one myself. It was If I was to ask Arteta a question... Um, I would ask, uh, or oh, it's, it's a really tough one. I mean, do you, any of you have, have one ready to hand or are you still thinking I, I'm really struggling because I feel like you've got to ask a question that ultimately he would be able to answer and they wouldn't just bat away and deflect. It's, it's tough. It, it is tough. My, my question, and it is with every manager is I would ask, what is your ultimate vision of Arsenal? Like in the ideal world, you could have any player at any position. What style do you want to play? What 
and obviously I don't mean, oh, I'd sign Messi and De Bruyne and, you know, on down the line, but what type of player do you want in each position? And what do you want Arsenal football to look like? What do you want Arteta ball, if you want to call it that, to look like? Because I think when we got him, a lot of people are like, oh, this is, this is Pep's guy. We're going to play this ticky tacka like real free, free flowing game. And in reality, I think Arteta is much more defensive minded than a lot of us, including myself, anticipated uh, when we hired him. So I would just like to hear, you know, we always talk about the team isn't what he wanted. It's unbalanced. He has some guys he wants to shift in. I would just love to know what the ultimate vision is in his mind of what Arsenal could be under him if he had his druthers. I think I'd ask him, um, and that's a really good question, Jared. I think I would ask him what, because it would answer a lot of other people's questions as well that we ask us a lot, is that what is it about you that you think you are the best man for the job over someone who is a more experienced coach? What is it that you are going to be able to do for Arsenal to take us forward from your perspective, which also links into what you were saying, Jerry, but specifically, what is it about you that is better for us than hiring someone with greater experience? Drew, have you got a question to mind? Hmm. Um, I think it was leaning towards Jared's just, and um, I was talking with um, Elliot at Arsenal Vision about this earlier, um, and we were kind of discussing about, you know, we're just we're struggling for goals under Arteta. You know, for someone who clearly does understand the tactical side of the game, you know, we have seen improvement in a lot of our attacking players. We, we still we're struggling for goals more so than under Emery, more so under Wenger and, and winning Wenger years. And we were trying to maybe figure out and discern why that could be. So I guess my question would be more of a tactical one. It's more of how do you see yourself rectifying that? Because the data is 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 is, is there to, to to show that we've improved on the defensive side of the game immeasurably, you know, but we're struggling for goals now. So my question would be, do you think it's a byproduct because you haven't focused on it yet? Or is it because you don't feel you have the players available to play how you actually want to play and what those players might look like? So it, it, it's part of that. It's part of what Jared's question was. It's also kind of a tactical one, just kind of how you plan on, on fixing something that in the Premier League is, is the currency that matters overall. You know, And if you look at the table, you know, leads of surrendered 50 goals this season but they've scored more than we have thus they're above us in the table you know i think so for a club like arsenal who i guess a lot of the the, the club legacy is we've had so many good attacking signs over the years um i'm all for being start at the back it's important you need both aspects of it but in the Premier league you can't build long-term system off of having good defense Sheffield united have proved that teams constantly prove that year in year out you need to be able to go out and score goals I think this season would look very different if you if you added just 10 to 15 goals to our goal tally this season. You know, if you look at the table just based off of that, if you add 15 goals to that, we're at 59 goals. That's what Leicester scored there in third place, and we have a similar defensive record. If you add just 10 goals, we're at uh, 54, which is on par with Spurs, Liverpool, West Ham. You know, we have better defensive numbers than they do, and they're all higher than the table. So clearly the, the issue now is goals. So I want to know how he's going to fix that. You're muted. You're muted. Classic. Um, we'll swiftly now go through as many of these as we can. Uh, Daniel Roberts says, do you understand why some people, and I'm glad you used the word people here, uh, would want us to lose the Europa League if it has a chance to get cronky out? The simple answer is no. Uh, well, actually, that's a lie. I understand why some people would. 
Um, but I'm, the reason why I said I'm happy to use the word people is because I wouldn't consider those people fans if they want Arsenal to lose. Um, it's as simple as that for me. Uh, Jared uh, Graham Yates says, when will Arsenal join the Super League? And, and he's basically said, do you think that if we join the Super League, that is KSE's end game for the, for the club, that extra money? Um, I think based on what we've seen, it's likely they're in game. They would like there to be a super league and they want Arsenal to be in it. Um, I don't want it to happen, but I think it's, it's still kind of not if, but when the one thing I will say about the attempt recently is that it went down in such a ridiculously catastrophic way that it was kind of an embarrassment and it just fell apart so quickly. My hope from that is that the next super league, rather than us talking about it in three to five years, maybe now we can push it back and, make it somewhere in the five to 10 year range before we have to talk about it again. But ultimately, if there's a move to move to a super league, that's going to bring more money. Of course, the ownership they're in it. Arsenal's an investment vehicle for them. They don't care about the football. Like all of us fans do. It's a business that they own to make money and to grow in net worth. So if they have an opportunity laid in front of them to do that, I don't think they're ever going to say no. Drew, Yonic Max says, what are your thoughts on Anthony Robinson as a backup option for Tierney in the summer? I think it'd be a good option, but uh, I always try to look at this angle. I think Yonic always comes up with good players to talk about, but I feel like if if his intention is to break into and establish himself as a Stop swinging, you're making me feel ill. <laughs> I, do that, I do that, I think sometimes. I feel like if, if Robinson's end game for himself is to, is to establish himself as a first-choice option moving forward for the U.S. men's national team, he's not going to want to come to Arsenal to be a backup. I think that's it. From his standpoint, it makes more sense to, to start somewhere else, to go to another team who maybe might need a left back where he's going to play 89% of the time. But I think from a personnel building standpoint from our end, I think he does make sense. But I, I, I can't just look at it from a singular point yeah. of view. You know, he, I, I feel like he'd be better off at a mid-table Premier League side that he's starting week in, week out. He'll easily get into the men's national team based off of that. He doesn't need to be at a top six Premier League club to do that. You know, So um, as an option, I like it, but I, I just don't think it would make sense for him. And if it, if we did get him, I wouldn't be sad about it, though. Yeah, I tend to agree. I think that Arsenal should either be targeting someone very young, like 20 yeah. under, or someone like a Van Arnholt or a Bertrand that's contracts running out and you just get them as as backup. Um, let's get another question. Uh, MIL reaction says, uh, Jared, should the fans have shares in the club like the German clubs do? I would love it. I would love it if the fans felt like they had a voice. I think sort of the fan culture in English football is so much different than it is here in the States and kind of the expectations. I would love it if the Premier League said fans were going to own 51%. I think that would go a long way towards keeping fans happy keeping all these protests from needing to happen. So I'd be all for it. Do I think it's going to happen? My best guess would be no. I, I don't see it coming into play, but if it did, I would be all for it. Yeah, uh, there are difficulties with the, the 50 and 1 and implementing it into English football. Um, if you want to know more about the 50 and 1, uh, Rafa Honigstein did a really, really good explanation the other day. And I feel like Drew wants to come in on this very briefly. <laughs> Go on, Sam. Uh, briefly, so people think a few things that people don't understand. 50 plus 1 does not mean fans get to decide how a club spends transfer money. I'm putting it out there now because I think a lot of fans feel like if they had a voice, it means. But you're telling me we don't, it's not like FIFA. Is that what you're saying? No, that's exactly what it's not like. So I feel like a lot of, I feel like a lot of fans feel like. 50 plus one means that fans get to decide big issues like that. They don't. It just means that it stops 
people coming in and getting majority ownership of a team. What the, what, however, what they don't understand is if an owner is there long enough, I think it's 20 or 25 years, they then can get full ownership of the club. They have to be there long enough. And then they can come in and move past the 49.9% you know, or whatever the, the, the damn math is. You know what I mean? So that's that's the other the caveat. I do think that fans need to have, again, I think fans need to have a voice. I think fans should have some ownership stake in their team. I don't think it should be 50 plus one. I feel like the other thing that, maybe this is a podcast in itself, but if you were to do 50 plus one in, in the Premier League, the, the, there would be the scope for the league to lose so much money because no billionaire owner is going to want to surrender 50 plus 1% of their ownership in a team. They would back out immediately. You would get something that's much, much closer to the Bundesliga. And then you you run the risk of clubs not being able to afford higher transfer fees, higher wage packets. You might lose TV revenue because it's no longer the star-studded action-packed, all the big names come here anymore because clubs wouldn't be able to afford it over time. So that's the drawback. If you want all that kind of level of fan involvement, then you're going to have to be fine with the fact that the Premier League loses so much of its financial punching power and pull that you might have a very different Premier League not that long after it. So that, all, that's all I would say. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. I think that, as I say, if you want to learn like in, in absolute detail, Rafa Holnigstein's made a really good video on it, but Drew says there, it's people need to understand what it does mean and what it doesn't mean because people are just assuming, oh, it's fans in control when that's not what it exactly means. Um, Josh Hunter says, I, I, I believe this may be directed towards me. Um, it says, uh, why is Potter a bad shout as manager when the board turned down a proven manager in Ancelotti uh, for Arteta for financial reasons? Josh, um, to answer your question, and I will do it as sincerely and without sounding as patronising as possible. Um, the reason why I don't want Graham Potter is that I don't think, and I should caveat this by saying that it's not me saying that a, a manager of a club in that area of the table cannot one day become a manager of the club at the size of Arsenal. I think if they prove themselves, they certainly can be. It's not me underestimating them. It's not me necessarily disregarding them it's me analyzing what they've done i actually think that where brighton are in the table is lower where they should be in comparison to the team that they have i think that brighton have got some really good players and he is not actually getting the best from that side so if he's not getting more from that brighton team that includes some really decent players i think that you can turn around and effectively say that he's not going to be able to do it at an even higher level that's why I don't want Potter. In regards to your question on Ancelotti, at the time, I, with the benefit of hindsight, it's very easy for me, and I agree with the point in saying that Arsenal probably should have hired maybe someone else in comparison to Arteta when we look at where we are now and we look at where the season has gone. I think there is a really strong argument for that. I don't think we turned down Ancelotti unless what you're saying is that by Arsenal not actually approaching Ancelotti, that in itself is turning him down as an option, which is fair enough. Um, maybe Ancelotti would have been a good manager for us in the short term, but I think you look at Arsenal, Arsenal's a long-term project club right now. I'm not saying in terms of staying as long as Arsene Wenger did, but with the job that is on hand at this club, with how long it's going to take to turn things around, we don't need a manager, in my view, that's just for the short term. We need someone that is going to change things across the next four to five seasons. If it's not Arteta, I feel like we'll know that throughout next season. But right now, I need to see another window before 
that actually happens. So I hope that answers your question in regards to Potter and why I personally wouldn't want him. Um, let's scroll down. Spiral Sam uh, actually says about this relating to what we just said there. Um, Drew, I think this is for you. Uh, why did Mikel get the job and what were the overall reasons? Mikel was second choice to Emery, so why should we settle for second best? I don't know the question mm, context, I feel. <laughs> I, 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 I feel like my take on that is I think I think Josh Cronky wanted Arteta, but I think he maybe deferred to the decision-making of um, he who shall not be named at the time. Yeah, we don't use that name. Right, so I feel like that's what I, and I feel like the, the, with how quickly we immediately wanted to bring Arteta in shows, I think maybe Josh stepped in and made an executive decision. And because he's de facto out of the club, he yeah. can do that if he really wanted to, I suppose. So I feel like that's how that came off. Why he got the job is, I think for me, I know Jared probably referenced some other things as well, is if you if you look at KSC style of ownership, it is, as you say, long-term. They, they look at where we're going to be in four, five, and six years, and they prefer to do that with bringing a younger manager or coach in and growing over time. And you've seen that with you know the Denver Nuggets, with the Colorado Avalanche, with, um, uh, the, Rams. with the Rams. So... I feel like if, if they're following a model that for them has worked, and if you, if you look at the last three seasons, all three of those franchises have all been considerably better than the, the past four years before that, there was uptick in all three. I think you'll know why I tried to get the job. Um, and also he was available. Yes. And I think also the club, because it runs sustainably, doesn't want to have to shell out an exorbitant amount of money to, but to buy a coach out of his contract early, the manager out of his contract early. I don't think anyone really wants to do that unless they can really afford to do it. So um, I just think for me, they wanted someone who's younger, charismatic, personable, understood the, the tactical side of the game, um, and who they thought they could grow with. Um, I think for me, that kind of just, that's it for me. Yeah, and like Drew said, this is something that isn't new for the Cronkies. The one that always stood out for me was just a couple of years prior to Arteta being signed. The Los Angeles Rams had a coaching vacancy, and there's a lot of seasoned veteran coaches available. They opted for Sean McVay, who at the time was no, zero head coaching experience, had only been an assistant, but was thought to be you know, really tactically astute at the NFL game. So they brought him in and gave him a chance. And I believe his second year there, the Rams actually made it to the Super Bowl. So they've come down a bit since then. But, you know, like we all have the recency bias, they literally just did the same thing and had it work very well for them in the NFL. So I think that kind of was in their mind, too, that they thought they could do the same thing uh, in the Premier League. Yeah. Um, staying with Jared, Oli Yemi says, how long is the process and what does the end of the process look like for Arsenal? So I think this coming year will kind of be the deciding factor. Um, I'm one, I, we talked about it a bunch on here. I'm good with Arteta being our coach going into next season. I think we've made improvements in some areas we really needed it specifically on the defensive side. And I've not seen enough yet that I dislike to say that we couldn't succeed with him as the manager. So with that in mind, I'm totally fine with him going into next season, but I think that will sort of be the make or break for him. If we have a summer where we bring in a couple of players and then we go out and finish 10th, 11th, 12th next year, I, I think that's probably going to be the end for him. But keep in mind right now, we're still playing European football this year. Um, mm -hmm. You know, if we get a good result against Villarreal, which, you know, maybe we will, maybe we won't. But if we beat them and we're playing in a final, very likely against United, um, while they've had a much better season than us, there's no question about that. The one thing I will say of any good team we could have to play in a final, 
if there's one team Mikel Arteta has had very good results against in his time here, it's it's United. We've played them three times. He's yet to lose, and we've yet to concede a goal. So if you have to play a good team in the final, that would be probably the best case scenario for us. And I mean, think about last year at the end of the season. We did not play well, but we won the FA Cup. And people were very positive about Arteta going into this year. So if we turn around, win Europa League, get Champions League football, I think the talk of Arteta come June 1st is going to sound a whole lot different than it does right now. Yeah. Um, Yo-Yo, I mean, following on from that question, Yo-Yo says, what have you seen since Arteta's promotion to make you believe he will do better with greater money and time? Just to tackle this quickly, and I'm going to give Drew a chance to answer this as well. Um, in my mind, the reason why I'm I'm okay is one. I mean, the bottom line is that there's a trophy in there, which I know some people just disregard like it's nothing. It's really, really not. Um, ask a Spurs fan how much they'd love to win a trophy. <laughs> ask um, I can tell you, there's quite a lot. Yes, very apt, considering what day it is. Um, but it's more so in part, it's about actually what he's done with the money it, in comparison to the previous seasons in, compa- in conjunction with Edu in bringing in, in identifying two areas that needed really decent upgrades. And we did that with Partey and we did that with Gabriel. Um, I also think that if you separate the two halves of the season, the first half of the season was absolutely awful. It's the reason why we are where we are right now is because of that awful first kind of third to a half of the season. And actually in the second half of the season, why I think that the, the, the differences between our wins and our, our losses or draws has actually been the losses and draws have been very, very fine margins. Only in that Liverpool game in the second half of the season did I genuinely feel like we were absolutely smashed. Manchester City arguably could have smashed us if they'd have got out of second gear, but they didn't need to. But it's those two games I kind of really look at. But this second half of the season, like winning away at Leicester, first time we've won there, one against, sorry, one against a top three side in the Premier League at this point in the season since 2015 with that Man City game, obviously. Beating Spurs at home in that performance, beating Chelsea on Boxing Day. There's been some really huge performances. We've blitzed teams, which showed me the potential this side have, like Slavia Prague, like West Brom. Winning at Brighton, which was a really difficult fixture as well for us over history as well, was shown that in my mind, this second half of the season has been so much better than the first. It's not been amazing, don't get me wrong, and there's been some really big things that have gone wrong. But I look at the season, I go, I can just kind of compartmentalise this season and go into next season knowing that he's got a good track record of spending in the summer and how we approach the January window as well. I look at the momentum that we could pick up from how we've played in the second half of the season. If we can tweak the team by moving out some of the consistent mistake makers that we've got and bring in some really consistent quality players in the summer, I do feel like we can go on from here. But I won't know that until this summer happens, and I'm not willing to chuck it in right now at a risk, basically, of of losing that. Um, Drew, what what do you? I wanted to give you an opportunity to answer it. So, how do you feel? Anything extra to what I've said there, or, or do you disagree in in a sense? Uh, <clears throat> I think one thing extra I would add is we have to look at Edu in this as well. Still, you know, it's all well and good to say like if, if we spend and try to get some players, and, and and as Jared said, if if he doesn't then perform, then the writing could be on the wall. But what happens if Arteta doesn't get the investment that maybe he needs, you know, this summer? What happens if Edu invests or, or puts us on a, a transfer spending cost this summer that just brings players that, again, don't make the grade? You know, if we don't spend the money wisely, again, you know, it's, it's easy to blame Arteta, but I think it's clear that to everybody that we need to improve in certain areas, you know, um, not just how we buy, but how we sell. And I think 
a, a big test of the brass this summer is going to be how they handle certain players. Like, are we going to persist on keeping hold of the likes of Enketia and, and Nelson and, and Maitland Niles if they don't have a, a place in the squad moving forward? You have to sell and you have to sell well. If you do that, that's going to help you to get the players in that some of us or a lot of us think we need. So I, I, I would add that, but I agree with everything else. I, I feel like I could probably be a lot more angry this season. I, I will not probably, I would be if we didn't see the improvement post Boxing Day. I, I'd probably live it, to be honest with you. And we, if, if that form persisted, we would be in, in, in the bottom quarter of the table, you know, 13th, 14th, 15th, you know, um, if we didn't get that uptick in form, but, you know, post-Christmas, what are we, top four, top five in the league? So it, it's not what all fans want, which is they want us to win the league, but it does show that when things settled down and, and we got some players available to us, the the improvement was there, which is what you want to see from the manager. So, um, yeah, like you said, compartmentalize it. I'm happy with how second half of the season has gone, but I want to see that move into next season. And for me, I think that none of this discussion happens if we win Europe and get Champions League next season. Everyone's just going to stop complaining if they see us in Europe. They'll just start complaining when we get smashed every week, but that's besides the point. <laughs> so it's, yeah. it, it, it is what it is. But, uh, but at the very least, getting Champions League would, would open us up to more money to be invested, which is the key for me. And then how we use that money is, is the, the even bigger key. So uh, it's one step at a time. Hopefully we win the Europa League and, and take it from there. But if we don't, I still think there's enough scope and room for us to, to improve next season just based off what we've seen since Christmas. So. Yeah, spot on. Uh, and that is where we are going to round off today's show. Thank you ever so much, everyone in the chat box, for tuning in this evening. Make sure you drop a like on the video and subscribe if you're new. I'd just like to give a massive thank you to my panel, first of all. Jared, as the end, as it's becoming a theme at the end of our videos, your lighting just drops off. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know what happens. <laughs> I thought you were closing the curtain on me. It was time to go. Oh, dear me. But thank you so much, Jared. I really appreciate your time this evening, and, and thanks for jumping in. Yeah, always a pleasure. Loved a chance to get back on and chat with you, Andrew. It's been great. You can follow Jared on Twitter at JC underscore AFC at Chicago Guna. You can find him on there as well as lots of other platforms where he does plenty of other podcasting stuff too. And you can find him in the Discord server because he is one of our excellent TGT ambassadors as well as our expert members who can join our Discord server too. Uh, Drew, always a pleasure, mate. I mean, I feel like this is good. We managed to get some of our uh, Potter slash Nagelsman hatred out today. It was a good therapy session though. Yeah, it was good. Thank you for having me as always. So yeah, it was a good discussion. It was good to finally get to talk to Jared on an actual podcast instead of just the, the ample tweeting we do back and forth on certain topics. So, mm-hmm. um, and thanks for the everyone in the chat as usual. Even though some of you decided to do nonsense things, so ninety nine percent of the time. <laughs> nonsense hashtag (laughs) nonsense things in the chat that's perfect that's great um thank you so much people it's been an absolute pleasure as always we'll be back tomorrow um we're going to be interviewing uh a a podcast favorite i know you guys really appreciate when we interview this guy alvaro romeo uh who is the spanish correspondent for Talksport. we're going to be talking to him about Villarreal and unai emery so make sure you tune in for that one to get all clued up on what has happened to our ex uh since he left and moved off back to spain uh we'll be back then tomorrow we'll see you again very very soon it's been a pleasure to speak to you as always and as always up the arsenal it's the 90 plus minute 
all your mates around and you've got a McNuggets share box ready to go and you know a late winner's coming. Your mates already got booked for a double dip in and you steal the last nugget, snatching all three points. Perfection. Order now on the McDonald's app for your delivery. You in? At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable! Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely and control vehicle at all times. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.